0: Hey, good morning, y'all. My name, uh, again, is Ed griffin Hagen. I'm one of our pastors uh, on the staff here at Church on the Trail. I want to assure you, before I get started this morning, I want to assure you of something. And you may wonder about all kind of stuff, and I'm a, 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 a jacked-up guy. I mean, I, yes, I lead this church, but I lead it with a limp, just like everybody else. But I want to assure you of one thing that I will, I promise you, I guarantee you, you can take it to the bank. I'll keep my underwear to myself. <laughs> that was too funny, y'all. <laughs> um, anyway, before we do get started this morning, though, I do want to, I want us to, to all pray together for what is going on in our world. Um, and so let me do that real quick. Lord, you are so good. And we may feel, our feelings may ebb and flow, and usually do ebb and flow like a river. Lord, but you are faithful. We can be so faithless, but you are so faithful. And so, Lord, we pray today as a church body, as a church family, as the body of Christ. Lord, we pray, and Lord, we lift up our servicemen and women that you would keep them safe wherever they are in the world here or overseas wherever it is keep them safe lord their their husbands their wives their parents their sons their daughters that you would give them a peace that is truly is not explainable but that you would provide their families with this peace lord we lift up the leadership in our country that you would impart wisdom and discernment, your wisdom, Lord, and your discernment, Lord, that those of them that don't know you, that they would come to know you, Lord, we lift up the American citizens in Afghanistan, the Afghan citizens, Lord, that you would keep them safe and provide them peace, that you would give them passage to that airport, safe passage to that airport, and, Lord, we pray that you would reveal yourself to the Taliban, that you would reveal yourself to them in a, in a in totally undeniable way, in, a, in an explicit way, in an in a obvious way. Lord, that they would enter into a saving relationship with you. And so, so Lord, we lift, we lift all of that up to you, in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, y'all, so we have been walking through Luke's second volume called Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, Luke wrote Luke, and Luke wrote Acts, and Acts is like the second volume of that. We've been doing that for a couple of months. We had have had, this is the third series that we're in right now called Growth. It began with expectancy, which is chapter 1 and birth which is chapter 2 because it was the birth of Christ's church and then now chapters 3, 4, 5 and the beginning of 6 is a series we're calling growth because we see the the, the growth of, of his church. And today we're in, in chapter 3, we're in verses 12 through 26. You know, A couple of weeks ago, we took a detour last week, but a couple of weeks ago we were at the beginning of Acts chapter 3 and we saw how the Lord healed this this crippled, lame beggar who was at the beautiful gate of the temple, you know, up on that Temple Mount that that um, that the mountain kind of looks down on, and it looks down on that beautiful gate of the temple. But we saw how that how that event at that gate with that guy, and how he was healed through Peter and John. The Lord healed him, but used his guys, Peter and John, to do that. And so today's message is called Teachable Moments. And we're going to start in verse 12. And you know, <coughs> y'all, traditionally uh, a good sermon, if you go to sermon school, you know, a good sermon, a good message, the, the, the uh, a good introduction is supposed to grab the attention of the people that hear it. It's supposed to kind of highlight a need that may exist and to get the people that are hearing the message in the right mindset, in the right frame of mind, to hear a message from the Lord. Well, that healing at the beautiful gate in the temple, that healing of that crippled uh, beggar, that healing is the is really acts as a beautiful, incredible introduction to another message that the Lord is going to going to kind of preach through through Peter. And so, the end of two weeks ago, the we ended in verse eleven. And I want to read that verse 11 to you uh, before we jump in. It says, while he, clung, he the, the beggar who was healed, while he cloned to Kepha and Yokonon, and again, is Peter, Yokonon is John, and if you remember, we're, we're using a translation for this message series in Acts. We're using the complete Jewish Bible, which is a great translation to get us in, uh, to kind of get us into the culture that the church was birthed in. And so there's some Hebrew words in there, and so I want to explain those. Anyway, Kepha and Yochanan, all the people. And who were all the people? It was all the people that heard it. They all came running. And they came running in astonishment towards Peter and John in Shlomo's colonnade, that's Solomon's colonnade in the temple. So they saw this happen. They heard that something was going on. They all come running. It drew a huge crowd of folks. All those people, they wanted to know how... Such a miracle was possible. And it so that gave the apostles, it's like a door opens. And it gave Peter and John just this instant opening to declare plainly that Jesus crucified and resurrected. That he was the long-awaited Messiah who fulfilled all the predictions and all the prophecies that all those people, because remember they're in the temple, so all these people are Jewish. And so they knew all these prophecies, and that that event, that healing, opened the door up for them to tell those people about Jesus. And so today I'm going to give you, I don't usually do this, but I want to give you the end first, the end of Peter's second sermon. I want to give you the end first, and then we'll jump back up to the beginning. So in verse 26, Peter ended this message by saying that God wants to turn people away from their sins. In order to bless them. He wants people to turn away from the sin. So that he can bless them. And that is exactly the opposite. Of what many people believe. Many people. I'm talking about church folks. I'm talking about believers. And many unbelievers. Feel this way. So they look at God. As this ultimate party pooper. A buzzkill That wants to, to turn people from sin. To. In order to make them miserable, like I want to be, I want to, I want to party and blah blah blah, and then I'll I'll think about that whole Christian thing. But I know I'm going to have to be miserable after I do that. Like, why do we think that way? Raise your hand if you've ever thought that way. Okay. Me too. Like I'll deal with that later. I'll de- I'll deal with that stuff later. So why is it that we think about it? Why is it that we think that way sometimes? And I think and I believe that it is because of the the craftiness, the shrewdness, the deviousness of our adversary. Y'all, because he is the liar of all liars. And since the very beginning, at the core of this issue, at the very beginning, since the very beginning, he's been super successful in getting us, tempting us. And often we fall victim to the temptation to doubt God's goodness, to doubt his goodness. We think that if God withholds something from us, whatever it is, it doesn't matter what it is, the fruit in the garden, like whatever, it must be because he's trying to deny us some secret golden egg that's hidden around somewhere. That's how we think if we buy into doubting the goodness of God. But if we embrace the truth that God is good, then we acknowledge that he, he prohibits certain things. He turns us away from certain things in order to bless our lives infinitely more than we could ever even think or imagine. So I'm telling you, don't let, don't, don't let Satan cause you or tempt you to doubt God's goodness. You know, and it doesn't have to be you know, I'm talking a minute ago kind of about drug, sex, and rock and roll. I'm not talking about that even. I'm talking about my wife gets sick, my daughter gets sick, my son. My, my And I walk outside and I'm like, God, if you were good, you would not allow that to happen. Y'all, that's the devil getting all up in your head because that is absolutely not the way it works. We live in a fallen world. You want to know why sickness, death? Pain, suffering exists. We live in a fallen world. And it's that, that's what happened in that garden. We're going to talk a little bit today about restoration because there, you do know there will be restoration. So jump back to the colonnade. And, and, and Peter had this audience. And so Peter takes advantage of the opportunity with this audience that has come running to him. Well, that's every pastor's dream. They're running to him rather than him going and finding them so he takes advantage of that opportunity to share Jesus with them. And he lays out a few things. He lays out uh, Jesus' true identity. He explains how the Jews rejected him, not him, Peter, him, Jesus, and why that rejection ultimately is fatal. And he tells them what they need to do to change that situation. Peter told them, told this crowd that they still had a choice. They still got a choice. They have breath in their lungs, y'all. They still have a choice. And so God offers them and us this opportunity to believe and receive Jesus as their Messiah, as their Lord, as their leader, and as their forgiver. You know, y'all, displays of God's love and God's grace and God's mercy, like the healing of this crippled man at that gate, a lot of the time, Those things create teachable moments. That's why the name of this message is Teachable Moments. And so I want to encourage you. I encourage myself to pray to have the kind of courage that Peter and John had. To recognize opportunities when an opportunity walks right in front of us. It happens every day. Every single day an opportunity walks in front of you. And a lot of times... You're, you're, you're not even, you don't even notice it. And a lot of times, you don't notice it because you're looking down. And when you're looking down, you're looking at yourself. Lift your head up and look around at what's going on around you because those moments exist every day. And so pray to have that courage and to see those things and to use those opportunities and those moments to speak up for Christ. And so with this healing, God teed it up for Peter and John. He teed it up. And then Peter drives it home in this second message that begins in verse 12. He proclaims the truth. He sprinkles that truth with a little Old Testament scripture, which wasn't the Old Testament then because there was no New Testament. It was the Bible. He sprinkles it with some scripture. And then he calls them to repent, these people. And then he also kind of develops a little more clearly the teaching of Jesus as the person of Jesus as a servant as the holy and righteous one, as the author of life, Peter uses that language. And as a prophet like Moses, he quotes Moses in this. And so this message witnesses to the nature of the one who had come to save and to encourage this crowd to come to saving faith. And it's hard to imagine, y'all, that this is the same Peter that just, remember, this is right on the heels of, of of that first Easter weekend. It's right on the heels of the crucifixion and the resurrection. It's right on the heels of Peter denying Jesus. And when I say on the heels, I'm talking weeks. Weeks he had just denied him, and this is the same guy. And then he's standing here in front of very potentially a hostile audience, and he is powerfully proclaiming the name of Christ and intentionally accusing those people you'll see in a minute accusing them of participating in that, of uh, accusing them of their role that they played in his death. So I want us to read this whole passage, and then we'll jump in verse by verse. It starts in verse 12. Seeing this, well, seeing what? Seeing all these people run into the colonnade, So seeing this, Kepha, Peter addressed the people. And he says, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? And what is this? This is the healing. Why are you amazed at what happened to this beggar? Or why do you stare at us as if we made this man walk through some power or godliness of our own? The God of Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Yahshua, Jesus, the same Yahshua you handed over and disowned before Pilate even after he had decided to release him. Even after Pilate had decided to release him. You denied the holy and innocent one and instead asked for the reprieve of a murderer. He's talking about Barabbas. Verse 15, he says, you killed the author of life, but God has raised him up from the dead. And of this we are witnesses. And it's through putting trust in his name that his name has given strength to this man whom you now see and know. That name gave strength to that beggar who was just healed in front of their eyes. He says, yes, it is the trust that comes through Yahshua, which has given him this perfect healing. Write that phrase down, perfect healing, in the presence of you all. Now, brothers, I know you didn't understand the significance of what you were doing, and neither did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had announced in advance when he spoke through all the prophets, namely that his Messiah was to die. And because of all that, he says in verse 19, therefore... Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be erased, remember that word erased, so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord's presence, and he may send the Messiah appointed in advance for you, that is, Yahshua. He has to remain in heaven. Well, who has to remain in heaven? Jesus has to remain in heaven until the time comes for restoring everything. Write that word down, restoring. Restoring. As God said long ago when he spoke through the holy prophets, for Moisha, that's Moses, himself said, Adonai, the Lord, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You are to listen to everything he tells you. Everyone who fails to listen to that prophet will be removed from the people and destroyed. Indeed, all the prophets announced these days, starting with Shmuel, that's Samuel. So starting with Samuel and continuing through all who followed. And he says, you are the sons of the prophets and you are included in the covenant which God made with our fathers when he said to Abraham when God said to Abraham by your seed will all the families of the earth be blessed so it is to you first that God has sent his servant whom he had raised up so that he might bless you by turning each one of you from your evil ways y'all Peter makes several crucial points that honestly Honestly, all of these points should be preached from every stage in every church on the planet every Sunday. Every church should be preaching the risen Christ. Every church should be preaching the gospel, the whole gospel, the full gospel, beginning with repentance, which we're going to talk about today. But I want to give you, and and these will be kind of short points, but there's several of them. The first one is this. The true source of our power and godliness is not us, it's God. The true source of our power and godliness and everything that we have and everything that we are is God. Look at these first couple of verses. Seeing this, Kepha addressed the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you stare at us like like we made this guy walk somehow? He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Yahshua. So Peter makes it clear to them that this miracle was not the product of his power. He said, don't look at me. It's not my Somehow my power, somehow my godliness. No, no. This miracle is performed by God himself through his people. Remember, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Jesus' presence and power is as active in 2021 as it was 2,000 years ago. He uses his people. He uses the body of Christ. Well, that begins right now. So this miracle is performed by God himself. And there's a purpose, a very explicit purpose. And he's like, don't look at us like we did it. We didn't do anything. So he also wanted to make sure, make it clear to these Jewish church folks, because that's who they were. They were Jewish church folks, that this miracle was the handiwork of the God that they claimed to follow. It was not some other God. It was not some pagan Zeus something or another. It was the God. He emphasized that by saying the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the purpose of the miracle is to bring glory to his servant, Jesus. And he uses that word servant. So God the Father is exalting the Son through this miracle. And that word servant looks back to several, several Old Testament passages. Several. I'm just going to give you one, and that's in Isaiah chapter 53. You want to read the gospel? Go read Isaiah chapter 53. The Jews knew Isaiah 53. They kind of avoided it. Jews today avoid Isaiah 53 because Jesus is all over it. But in verse 11, it says this. After this ordeal, he will see satisfaction. Who's the he that Isaiah is talking about? Is the Messiah. He will see satisfaction. By his knowing pain and sacrifice, my righteous servant makes many righteous. Think about that. By his pain and by his sacrifice, he makes many people righteous. It is for their sins that he suffers. Y'all, that's 840 years before Jesus is born, that Isaiah pins that. And so Peter wants Jesus identified with the servant Messiah that Isaiah is talking about. Does that make sense? That's what Peter's talking about. That's what he's trying to make them understand. This is the guy... That is the servant Messiah that all the prophets have have spoken about, particularly Isaiah. And so then, so when he's doing that, these, these people, they start to connect the dots. And when they're connecting the dots, he lays a brutal truth on them. And that brutal truth is the second point today, and that is this. You handed him over to die. That's what he says. You handed him, yes, the Romans committed the act, but you handed him over to die. The rest of verse 13, 14, and 15, he says, The same Yahshua you handed over and disowned before Pilate, even after he decided to release him, because Pilate was ready to let him go. Pilate was like, I don't find any guilt in this guy. Verse 14 says, though, you denied, and you can see Peter stand there, and he's probably all kind of up in their face pointing. You handed him over. You denied him. You denied the, and he calls him the holy and innocent one. You did that and instead asked for the reprieve of a murderer. You killed the author of life. So men handed over God's son. And and, and it wasn't just the folks of Jesus' day who put him on the cross. It's every single human that ever took a breath. None of us would have done any differently. Don't get all holy and act like you wouldn't have done the same thing. All of us would have. Why? Because we're fallen and broken and sinful. We're, we're, We're born in iniquity, David says. We all would have crucified him. That's kind of the whole point of his death. Because we all would have done the same thing because we're all human beings and we all have that nature. And he died for every single man and woman's sin. So for the most part, all those people that were there denied him. Even when he was innocent of the crimes that he was charged with, Pilate saw it. None of the charges were justified. He was rejected and condemned by men because the men didn't didn't like the claims that he made. What are the claims that he made? He claimed to be God. He claimed to forgive sin. I grew up just being told he never claimed. My mama said that to me, y'all, the night that I got saved. She said, he never claimed to be God. Like, are you kidding me? It's easy to say that if you never read the Bible. Did he claim to forgive sin? Yes or no? On the very heels of that, well, only God can forgive sin. Duh. I mean, you claim to forgive sin, you're claiming to be God. And so they—they they, that was blasphemy to them. Total blasphemy to them. And he said, he said to him, you chose a murderer over God's servant. You killed the author of life and chose a murderer instead. There's a crazy truth in there. That every single person who rejects Jesus is choosing sinful man and sinful man's ways over the sinless Messiah and his ways. And that choice is a choice of sin and over holiness it's a choice of unrighteousness over righteousness it's a choice of sinful and murdering man over a holy and loving and good God it's a choice of corruption over incorruption and when when you really get down to it it's a choice of death over life and so they handed him over thank goodness that there's a but in the Bible many buts in the Bible Third point then is this. Death could not hold him. Death couldn't hold him. What a glorious truth. He turns graves into gardens. Y'all, we just sung about that. We just sung about it. Death could not hold him. Verse 15 continues on. It says, but God has raised him from the dead. And of this we are all witnesses. So the one that the Jews denied, the one that the Jews handed over, had killed He was presently alive. You do know he is alive. And he was raised by God. He he ascended, comes out of the grave alive, and several weeks later, he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And Peter and and hundreds of witnesses, they saw all of that. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, he says he was seen by Cepha. Well, who he? He, Jesus was seen by Cepha and then by the twelve. And afterwards, he was seen by more than 500 brothers at one time, the majority of whom are still alive. And you can almost see Paul writing this and saying, like, here's what Peter said. Go ask them. Like, they're still alive in that moment. They're still alive. The people that saw him, they're still alive. Go ask them. He says, though some of them have died. Verse 7 says, later he was seen by Yaakov, that's James, Then, by all the emissaries, that's the the apostles. And last of all, he was seen by me, even though I, and this is Paul saying me, even though I was born at the wrong time, that just means Paul wasn't there. Paul didn't meet Jesus for several years later on the Damascus, uh, on this road, um, and got knocked off his horse. And he he and Jesus had a, a little come to Jesus meeting right there on that road. And so he says, I was born at the wrong time. I wasn't there, but I saw him. And then it is, it is his name, y'all. It is Jesus' name that makes us whole. We're going to talk about what that means, his name. But it is his name that makes us whole. Look at verse 16. It says, and it is through putting trust in his name that his name has given strength to this man whom you see and know. Yes, it is the trust that comes through Yahshua which has given him this perfect healing in the presence of you all. It's the name of Jesus that makes us whole. It is, it is faith in him that makes us complete. It is only in his name that we can may be completely healed. And so Peter refers to this miracle when he says that. He refers to this miracle that had gotten everybody's attention, this miracle that had caused all those people to run into the colonnade. And so just like in verses 12 and 13, he doesn't take credit for it, but he credited the name, credited the name of Jesus for the healing. Peter was referring, when he says that, to his full identity, to everything about who Jesus is. He is the healer, and he's still the healer. He is a completer, and he is still a completer. He is a forgiver, and he is still a forgiver, y'all. He is our leader. He was the leader then, and he is a leader today, a perfecter, the counselor. He He is everything, and so when When Peter says this, he's talking about all that Jesus is when he says his name. It's all of what Jesus is. It's all of who he is. And so that verse says that Jesus gave this man perfect healing. Perfect healing. Complete healing. That word in the original language in the Greek, it denotes total restoration of everything about that man. Yes, that man is laying there, legs twisted up, tangled up, crippled. But when he's healed, everything's healed. And y'all, it doesn't start with the legs, it starts with the heart. It doesn't start with the mind, it's the heart. The mind plays a role. Of course it does. But I can know every... I can't do this, but let's pretend I could recite every word in this scripture to you, and I could be lost as a goose and going straight to hell. So I can have the knowledge, devil knows who Jesus is, probably quote all kind of scripture to you. But if it never makes its way from the mind to the heart, then that's problematic, right? It's the heart. And so that perfect healing is the whole man. Lots of points today. The next one is this, verse 17. Now, brothers, I know you didn't understand the significance of what you were doing, and neither did your, your, your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had announced in advance when he spoke through the prophets, namely that his Messiah was going to die. And so what Peter is saying there is you got no excuse because God already told you. In fact, he told you a gajillion times. He told you over and over and over In Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Hosea, in the Psalms, in the Proverbs. He told you over and over and over what was going to happen. You got no excuse. That's what Peter is telling them. And yes, yes, you and your leadership were ignorant. Very ignorant. You really didn't know what you were doing, he says. But you absolutely should have known what you were doing. They had the prophets. They had the prophets who who proclaimed the coming death of God's Son. God had foretold all of it in multiple ways and multiple times. He had revealed it. He had foretold everything that man needed to do and say and believe to come to his Son. He didn't condone their ignorance. They are without excuse. So are you. Without, we may be in the 21st century, um, I'm trying to make up a word on the fly. I'm not going to make a word up. We may be more without excuse. Culpable. Who said culpable? Absolutely, the law student says culpable. We very well may, you know why? It's a church, particularly in the Bible Belt, y'all. It's a church of 500 churches in Columbus. It's a church on every corner. The gospel gets proclaimed. Now, sometimes it's half a gospel, but the God, Jesus' names everywhere. Everywhere. you got to run away from him. Like, so we may very well be more, even though they saw these events, we have heard it and seen it and read about it. There's a million different commentaries you can get. You, it's just everywhere. You got it, like I said, you got to run away from him. And so he says to them, you, you killed Christ, and it's the sin and the shame and the rebellion against God that does it. Refusing to study and listen to the scriptures, not accepting them for what they clearly say. You think about that pat that little verse I read in Isaiah a minute ago. It's clear. It doesn't take a PhD, a master of divinity, a doctorate in, in ministry. It doesn't take all that to understand that. But you got to get in and dig in the scriptures. John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus said this. John records it. Jesus said it. And he's talking to a Jewish leadership. And he says, You keep examining the Tanakh. The Tanakh is the Bible. He says, You keep examining the Bible, the scriptures, because you think in that. You have eternal life, but those are the very scriptures that are screaming about me. They're all screaming about me. Listen, Jesus doesn't just show up on the scene in Matthew chapter 1, right? Our God is unchanging, and our God is triune. Jesus is just just as eternal as the Father and the Son. Do y'all get that? And I'm not saying the Trinity is an easy concept to understand because it's not. It's not. But he doesn't just show up in Matthew chapter 1. Physically, sure. But all the scriptures foretold about all of that. So they are without excuse and you and I are without excuse. And so because of that, because of our excusedness, unexcusedness, culpability, whatever it is, you gotta repent. You, you, you gotta repent. You gotta turn 180 degrees. Not 90. You gotta turn 180 degrees. Therefore, repent and turn to God. There's not a period there either. There's a comma. You gotta repent and turn toward to, to God so that your sins may be erased. What a cool word erased is. They had rejected, they had despised. They had killed Jesus through the hands of the Roman crucifixion platoon, but they could still turn from their sin. They could still turn towards God. They could still be cleansed. They could change their minds about him. That that word repent. In that language, it meant to turn away from a former way of life and turn towards a new way of life. Do you understand? That's what it means to repent. I turn away from all of this junk, whatever that junk is, and I turn towards a new way of life. And that new way of life is walking. And Paul says, in the walk, in the newness of life. You, you. When I turn away, I, I, I'm a new creation. And then he empowers me by the Holy Spirit living inside of me. He empowers me to turn and. And walk in the newness of life. Think about the language we use when we baptize somebody, physically baptize somebody, when they take the God plunge, that's what we call it here. As we raise them up out of the water, it's we encourage them to walk in the newness of life. How many of you, if you've been baptized, if you've taken the God plunge, how many of you remember when it happened? Right, do you remember coming up out of the water, and if you were, if it was here and you heard those words, the feeling of coming up out of the water? And somebody saying, "Now walk in the newness of life, dude!" Like that is just—you could go conquer the world because the Holy Spirit is living inside of you. You can, you can now walk in the newness of life. And so it begins this verse, these yeah, the verse uh, uh, verse nineteen, with repentance, and it climaxes with, "My sins are erased." My sins are erased. In this case, the eraser is God, and the writing is this list of their sins. And not just the sin of killing the author of life, but all of their sins are erased. It is like, God, just think about what that looks like. All of my junk, when I repent, God comes down with giant eraser and just erases all of it. You know, when you erase pencil off a piece of paper, it ain't there no more. Right? Right? That's that's the that's the eraser. So what is on your list? You know you got a list. Like like what would God have in writing on your list of sins? What what would be there? Because in Peter's words, that list can be totally wiped out. It can be totally erased. It can be totally cleansed. Because God's not going to take that list And use it for some future time when he might want to drag it up and get it in front of your face. That's not what he does. It's outside of his character. It's outside of what scripture says. They're totally wiped out, separated from us as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103, I think, says. Isaiah says this scarlet list is made white as snow. How is it made white as snow? The blood of Christ makes it white as snow in Isaiah chapter 1. In Micah chapter 7, it says that the Lord will cast your sins into the abyss of the sea, into the depths of the sea. Y'all, that's the power of the cross. That's the power of forgiveness. It doesn't... Now, is the devil going to try to drag back that list up? A hundred percent. But if that list gets drug up and stuck into your face, that ain't God doing that. That's the devil doing it. What does he do? He says, remember what you did when you were 18? Remember what you did with that girl when you were 21. Remember what you what you what you saw and what you did and how you acted. Remember when you were, remember when you were so ugly to your wife. Big things, little things. Look, my list would have to be on a scroll. But what happened that dark morning when I got saved is that scroll got rolled up and tossed into the sea. That is probably the most glorious truth in Scripture. And it is the power of the cross that rolls that scroll up and chunks it into the sea. We get this offer of divine erasing. And our response should be to turn from our sin and turn towards the Lord. Let me tell you something about the past. First of all, again, your adversary will drag it up. Expect that he will drag it up because he will. And he'll try to deceive you into focusing on the list and wallowing up in the list. But don't do it. Don't do it. Move ahead. Don't move backwards. Move ahead. Don't don't move backwards. Because if you spend all of your time today thinking about your failures of yesterday, you are going to ruin your tomorrow. When today looks too long at yesterday, you're borrowing from tomorrow's time. Does that make sense? Today looks too long at yesterday. You're messing up all the opportunities that are coming tomorrow. Yesterday is like the rearview mirror in in your your truck. You know we're in the south. I guess everybody has a truck. I didn't say car. I could say jeep, but all 'all, y'all y'all some of y'all aren't as cool as me and, and don't have a jeep. But but when you go when you go somewhere in your car, your truck, or your jeep. You got a rear view mirror and you use the rear view mirror and, and, and what does that rear view mirror do? It allows you to look behind you and you need that rear view mirror, but you just need it to glance into. You can't move ahead by focusing on the rear view mirror. You move forward by looking at, uh, ahead of you. And if you live in the rear view mirror, you're going to hurt somebody. You may hurt yourself, but you may hurt and probably will hurt lots of other people. But in front of that rear view mirror is a big old, much bigger piece of glass called a windshield, and that windshield lets you see what is in front of you. It lets you see what you're, where you're going, and it's a lot bigger than where you've been. It's a lot bigger than what you see in that rearview mirror. So don't let yesterday mess up today, because that's going to ruin tomorrow. And so while you're moving down the road of your Christian life, you're moving down the road uh, of your Christian walk, every now and again, you peek in that rearview mirror. Glance at it just to see what's behind you, maybe just so you don't make a a, a wrong turn while you're moving ahead. But don't stare and live in that rearview mirror. Don't, don't stare and live in in, in that rearview mirror. So number six is repent 180 degrees, turn away from the sin and turn towards God, and your sin will be erased. Look at verse 20. Verse 19, repent, sins gone. Verse 20, so that times of refreshing may come from the Lord's presence and he may send the Messiah appointed in advance for you, that is Yahshua. He has to remain in heaven until the time comes for restoring everything, as God said long ago when he spoke through the holy prophets. So there will be a time of refreshing and there will be a time of restoration. There will be, and it's two different, those are two different times. They're not, he's not talking about the same time. The time of refreshing and a time of of, re, of restoration, verse twenty. He's beginning to talk about the about end times. In Luke's gospel, and in Acts, Luke stresses big time all of the things, everything that that happened when Jesus comes the first time. But he does it without losing sight of the future and this final fulfilling of God's purposes. When Jesus comes back, you know he's coming back, right? Everybody believes that he is coming back. Stop putting a timeline on it, though. Matter of fact, y'all, this is my opinion. Stop saying, I wish he'd come back tomorrow. I don't wish he'd come back tomorrow. You know what happens if he comes back tomorrow? Too many lost people are going straight to hell. I don't want too many lost people to go to hell. I want him to wait. Like, if I'm selfish, yeah, man, come back, like, take me right now. But there's too many lost people that are going to go to hell, so so I don't want him to come back. I mean, I do want him to come back. I don't want him to come back now. Does that make sense? I hope I didn't offend anybody. But we are charged, our marching orders to, are to go make disciples, right? And go be his witnesses. Well, let's just do that and leave the when he's coming back to him, right? Right? So for these people in Solomon's colonnade, they're hearing Peter preach this invitation to repent and to believe and to receive forgiveness. It doesn't—that doesn't really mean that salvation was limited to just this personal experience in that very moment. There's more to it than that, y'all. It, it also meant that their repentance and faith in Christ would usher them into a whole new world, into a new sphere of life called the kingdom of God, and then into being part of this final deal. This restoration, which we'll talk about in a few weeks, but that final deal when the ascended Jesus would be the descending Jesus, right? Because several weeks ago, he's a, he ascends into heaven. Well, he's when he comes back in Luke chapter 21, Jesus said, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with tremendous power and glory. So there'll be a time of refreshing, and then there'll be a time of restoration, Number eight is this, judgment is coming. There will be a judgment day. There will, there will be. The prophets predicted it. Look at verse 22. For Moshe himself said, I deny the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You are to listen to everything he tells you. Everyone who fails to listen to that prophet will be removed from the people and destroyed. Circle that word, destroyed. Indeed, all the prophets announced these days, starting with Shmuel, Samuel, and continuing through all who followed. So Moses predicted that God would send his prophet, his Messiah, to the planet. People got to listen to what he says and res- not just listen, but respond rightly to him or be destroyed is the word that's used. And so he says, all the prophets from Samuel on predicted the coming of uh, and the judgment of the Messiah. And hearing and listening are two different things. In ancient times, Moses comes off the mountain. He's spoken about the, the prophet. He's spoken about the Messiah who'd come one day. And so Moses urged Israel. He urged the people to listen to this one that is sent from God. And that word listen, it's more than just the sound waves going in in your ears. That word has this. Added idea of hearing with a view towards obeying. Not just hearing the words. So what's your attitude when you hear the word of God preached? What's your attitude? What's your feelings? Do you just hear the sound waves? Are you really not even listening? Are you playing on on Facebook on your phone or something? Does it go in one ear and out the other? Is that kind of your stance or your attitude? Or do you listen with the intention of being a doer of the word? James says be a doer, not just a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word. Let the word of God live inside of you and transform your life. He will transform your life through his word. That word destroyed. It doesn't mean to cease to exist. Many people believe in annihilationism. That means, I don't care when I'm dead, I'll be dead. That you just cease to exist, that there's nothingness. You die, you rot in the ground, and there's nothing. It's not what it means, and that's not what happens. And that's not what that word destroyed means. No, you and I are Eternal. We're living somewhere. For eternity, we're living somewhere. So that word means to lose our well-being, to be wasted and to be ruined and to be given a worthless, painful, suffering existence. It means that, that that destroyed is to be devastated and condemned. That person will suffer waste and loss and ruin forever and ever. I heard about a father who was dying. And he gathers his family together. Because it's super close to the end, and he knew that he only probably had a few minutes left to live, and he had four children. And he says to them, they're all gathered kind of around his bed. And he says, Good night, John. Good night, Butch. Good night, Betty. Goodbye, Ralph. And he says, You said good night to Betty and John and, and Butch, but you said goodbye to me. Why, why'd you do that, Dad? And his dad looks at him. He says, Son, that's because they have accepted. Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior they are a new creation they've accepted the grace and the forgiveness that he offers and I'll see them again in glory but because you haven't I won't ever see you again he had a tear rolling down his eyes and he said that makes me sad so judgment y'all judgment's coming verse 25's last point he says you are the sons of the prophets and you are included in the covenant he was talking to these Jewish people in that colonnade and you are included in the covenant which God made with our fathers when he said to Abraham, to "Abraham, by your seed will all the families of the earth be blessed. So it is to you first that God has sent his servant whom he has raised up so that he might bless you by turning each one of you from your evil ways. So there's a warning in here. There's a warning. Peter was saying as clearly As he could to his Jewish brothers and sisters. The long awaited. The long expected Messiah has already come. God promised him to Abraham. Moses reaffirms that promise. Samuel the first prophet. And every single prophet from Samuel on. Spoke of the coming Messiah. And now he has come. And you people are in danger of missing him. That's what he is saying to them. The phrase to you first in that language, it is at the very beginning of the sentence. It's the first words in the beginning of the sentence. Why? They're there for emphasis because the message of salvation came first to the people of Israel. The descendants of Abraham and Moses and Samuel and all the prophets, all of them should have known the prophecies. They should have recognized him when he came. They knew their scripture. They were going to be the prime beneficiaries of the blessings of the covenant. I want you to notice that the main thing, the main thing in the blessing was to turn them back from their sinful ways. And so Jesus' work at at the core of the core is to turn lives around. To turn lives around taking individuals that are on a sinful path and turning them from from that path to a path of blessing by transforming a heart. That's how it happens. A heart changes. When we become a new creation, everything flows out of the heart change. And Israel had every reason to turn to Jesus. History, heritage, bloodlines, centuries of, of warnings and, 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 and prophecies from scads of prophets, and they did not recognize him. Y'all, we not only have that, but we have two centuries of people way smarter, way holier than us, who have written volumes and volumes and volumes about this Jesus, we have the gospel everywhere. I talked about this a minute ago. It's everywhere. We've seen lives change. We've witnessed lives change. Some of us may have seen a physical healing. Like, I don't know. My oldest son saw a man in the woods in Africa. And my son is so concerned. And he said, Daddy, I like I, I would never, if he said it, Daddy, if you'd have told me, I wouldn't have. But he saw a 40-year-old man who had not walked a day in his life be healed and walk. He didn't run a marathon, but he got up and he walked. He said, I wouldn't have believed it if you'd have told me, and I trust you, Daddy. But he saw it with his own eyes. Y'all, we've seen husbands change. We've seen alcoholics not be alcoholics anymore. We've seen adulterers not be an adulterer anymore. We've seen people go from mean to kind. Well, what happens when a heart changes? That's the change that Peter's talking about. That's the change, y'all, that the gospel talks about. That's what happens when you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. you got to be different on this side of the cross than you were on that side, and a little different maybe at the beginning. Maybe you're just a little less mean. But as you grow and mature, you go from less mean to kind. That's what Peter is talking about. Y'all don't miss him. You don't know what tomorrow's going to hold. Don't miss him. Peter is more than anything Peter is telling these people. Don't miss him. And I'm telling you, whether you're watching or you're sitting here, if you don't have a a saving relationship with him. Don't miss him. Like I said, I don't want him to come back tomorrow. He might come back tonight. Don't. Please don't miss him. If you don't have that relationship, just please tonight when you lay down in the bed and your head hits that pillow, just think about something that was said today. Grab your Bible and read it. Open it up on your phone and read it. And just consider this offer that Peter is talking about. Because while there is breath in your lungs, and you don't know when there won't be, and I don't either. But while there is, just consider the offer that he makes. That's all I'm saying. I would love for you to come running down here in tears to this cross and be saved right now. Just just consider the offer. Let me pray. And if you want this today, it's just this prayer. Simple. Lord, I acknowledge that I'm lost. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge that I have rough, bad thoughts that roll around in my head. But I really do acknowledge that and I and maybe I've been trying to fix it myself for 25 35 45 years and I've come to a realization today that I can't fix it. I can't bring restoration. I can't do it. And so I recognize my need and Lord like Peter says just (coughs) repent turn away from the sin and turn towards the Lord. So Lord I'm doing that today. I'm turning away from the old and turning towards you and Lord I believe you died on that cross and that death took care of those sins and erased them and whether the devil drags them back up or not Lord I I believe that you erased them with your death on that cross had to be paid for and you took care of it. and Lord I believe that you walked out of that grave alive to seal the deal and so, Lord, today I cry out to you to save me. And I acknowledge that I will be far from perfect. In myself, I will be far from perfect. But I also believe that you bring perfect healing. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, y'all, if that was you or if you just need to pray with somebody, to talk to somebody, we've got people on our prayer team back there in that in that corner who would love to pray with you, to pray for you. Um, if you need me, I'll be out here after church and would love to talk to you.